0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, you to the Bite Size Business Breakfast Best Bits from Friday, February the 10th. Coming up, we will be hearing from Jacques Visser. Jacques is the Chief Legal Officer, basically the head on show, uh, legal side of things down at DIFC. Uh, he came into studio to explain to us Uh, The latest developments with regards to family offices and the legal requirements surrounding those family offices. As I said, he joined us live in studio to give us a few more details on that. Talking of live in studio, same thing with Thierry Delvaux. Thierry's the CEO of JLL Middle East and Africa. They had a new report out that hinted at um, a huge amount of competition in the market for grade A commercial and office space. Uh, The supply and demand model is seeing that demand rise at the moment. And in line, we're also seeing rents and prices rise substantially. Thierry was here to explain some of the reasons as to why. And also joining us live in studio, it was a sort of live in studio day, was Mariam Salmon, consultant at Kamar Energy. Why? Friday's opportunity for us to look back at the week that was through a certain lens. And this and each and every Friday, we always look at some of the big energy stories that we've collated throughout the week. Have a look back at them and get the thoughts of an energy expert uh, on what that means for the market as a whole. Mariam Salmon did exactly that one for us. Plus, there's plenty of chat in the studio. PMI Data was out for Dubai, made for some interesting reading. Uh, Richard gave us his thoughts. We got the thoughts of Daniel Richards as well from Emirates MBD, amongst others, to see what those numbers meant for the economy. Uh, and Nadia Swan was in studio to represent the ARN News team, keeping us up to date with the developing story over in Turkey and Syria after the tragic and awful Earthquakes rocked both those countries and the region as a whole earlier on this week. That is the bite-sized business breakfast. The big talking point of this morning, uh, which sadly has been the talking point throughout the entirety of the week, in fact, we came on air on Monday morning just as this story was breaking. Fast forward to the end of the week and sadly we are still covering it. The death toll is escalating rapidly at the moment. Bring us the latest from the Turkey-Syria border.
1: So that combined death toll, uh, Tom, that you were talking about in Turkey and Syria, that's now risen to over 20,000 and there are thousands more who are still missing. Now that important 72-hour period where there's still hope of finding survivors has passed, but there have been some almost miraculous stories of babies and people still being rescued. We heard yesterday how one of the Emirati search and rescue teams on the ground in Turkey had rescued a Syrian family of four from the rubble of their home. That was a mother, a son and two daughters. That was a fire Five hour operation in Kahramanras. They gave them medical treatment before they were taken to hospital for further treatment. Now, what the victims are desperately in need of are medical supplies, clothes, and shelter because they're out in the snow in sub zero temperatures at the moment. It's going down to as low as minus five in many places. And this is how one aid worker on the ground described the situation.
2: Having supplies for the coming days and weeks is going to be critical. People need food, they need shelter. They need to keep themselves warm, need medicines, and also for the water supply as well, which is also some areas have been contaminated, uh, and that's a concern.
1: So the UAE, as usual, have been playing an important role in sending aid to the area as part of its Gallant Night 2 operation. So far, they've airlifted 640 tonnes of relief supplies. Now, that includes 22 aid planes, which have been dispatched so far. That's also including 15 flights to Turkey that's carrying search and rescue teams, medical supplies and they've also got a 50-bed field hospital there. Um, Seven planes with food items and 515 tents have also been sent to Syria. Now, of course, they also need financial aid. International donors are pledging funds. The US Agency for International Development, they've uh, provided 85 million US dollars. The World Bank says they're going to provide Turkey with 1.78 billion US dollars. And the UAE as we've heard earlier this week, has also sent 100 million US dollars to both countries, 50 million to each. And that's on top of 50 million dirhams that were sent to Turkey a few days ago at the directives of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the Vice President and Prime Minister of the UAE and ruler of Dubai. Now, there's also obviously volunteering efforts going on. The Emirates Red Crescent locally, they're working with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Corporation and the Ministry of Community Development and they've launched their Bridges of Goodness campaign. So, more Emirati humanitarian organisations have also joined in with that. We're looking at Dubai Cares, the UAE Water Aid Foundation, International Humanitarian City, the Sharjah Charity International, DP World and the Emirates Foundation. That's naming just a few. There are over six now in total they are collecting they're sorting they're assembling that aid that's going to be sent out to turkey and syria and many people here in the uae want to do what they can to Mm. help So if you want to donate, you can do that by registering on the website volunteers.ae. And that campaign there of collecting these donations is starting on Saturday from nine o'clock in the morning up until two o'clock in the afternoon. There are three venues now. We've got the Abu Dhabi National Exhibition Centre. We've got the Dubai Exhibition Centre in Expo City and Sharjah next to Khalid Lake over there. So that's how if you want to do something, you can help the victims of that earthquake in Turkey and Syria.
0: And important to remember that uh, that you can't help but have compassion, um, given the images we're seeing come out of the region at the moment, but making sure that you go through the official channels to make sure that you're giving to the right organisations, etc., and therefore listening to organisations like ARN to work out where best to give is that right
1: that's right yes because we have those details on the website as to how you can donate to channels um, and organizations that will practically send that aid there and it's official as you say
0: yeah it's a dire situation Uh, our thoughts obviously go out to all those affected and as that death toll increases unfortunately you're hearing here more and more stories here in the UAE of people that have lost loved ones uh, friends Family uh, in the tragedy. So uh, uh, our thoughts go out to all of them and then all those that have suffered loss as a result of this uh, catastrophic earthquake uh, on the Turkish-Syrian border. Our uh, thanks to you, Nadia, for joining all us live. More details here.
1: on our app.
0: Uh, details on the app and more details in the next hour from Nadia and the rest of the team on the ARN news desk meanwhile we are taking a look at some of the numbers that we have been granted overnight Richard Dean uh, was kept up
3: last night by the Dubai PMI numbers what have you you gleaned so the economy is growing uh, strongly but not quite as strongly as it was the previous month. These are the Purchasing Manager's Index numbers from Standard and & Poor's, and they've come out within the past 24 hours. Daniel Richards, Senior Economist at Emirates MBD, has been crunching them, and we asked him, what were the key takeaways from Dubai's PMI?
4: So yesterday we had the release of the S&P Global PMI survey for Dubai, which fell slightly in January as it came in at 54.5 compared with 55.2 for previous month. But that is still a pretty robust reading when you compare it to what we're seeing in the rest of the world. Anything above that neutral 50 line indicates an expansion. So the Dubai PMI survey still shows that it's growing quite strongly, even if at a slower pace. And when you compare that to the rest of the world, The PMI surveys for the global composite and many of the developed market economies have either been negative or just very weak since around the middle of last year. So we are seeing a slowdown in the non-all private sector, which is in line with our expectations given that the Dubai economy is not immune from the headwinds facing the global economy at large. But our real GDP forecast of 3.5% this year, down from 5% last year, our estimate of 5% last year, that's still pretty strong compared to what we're seeing around the world with the IMF's uh, global forecast for this 2.9%.
3: So that's Dan Richards on those PMI numbers. Strong, not quite as strong, but still strong. What about these office rent numbers, Tom, we wanted to know about? Um, So we'll get Dan's take on the office rent numbers in a second. But first of all, just give us a bit of context. You're speaking to Thierry Delvo from the consultancy JLL in a few minutes' time because office rents in Dubai are rising. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, because of demand, basically, increased demand for quality spaces, especially when it comes to office and commercial spaces, uh, combined with a number of other uh, factors is creating upward pressure on grade a rents the findings of jll uh, through their latest surveys we'll be jumping jumping into those with the ceo of jll middle east and africa waiting patiently in the green room at the moment that's coming shortly
3: it's the business breakfast dan has been looking at it it's what brandy scott's off today but this is what she would say is a nice bit of proxy data she loves a bit of proxy economic data uh, so dan richards has been looking at it
4: There's been especially robust growth in the price of renting office space in Dubai, with consultancy firm JLL reporting year-on-year growth of 21% in the fourth quarter for office rents, taking them back to levels last seen in 2015. Now, as with everything, this comes down to supply and demand, with part of the reason being a shortage of sufficient Grade A office space at present. But on the other hand, that's, of course, being driven by the demand side. And there's been an influx of firms looking to set up here in a host of sectors, not least in finance and technology. Businesses have been attracted to Dubai by the strong growth outlook, with oil back at elevated levels, driving activity in the wider GCC. And also the Dubai population expanding strongly. And also by the rapid reopening of the economy here and the deft re-handling of the pandemic crisis, which has encouraged businesses to move here from some of the East Asian hubs. This rise in demand for office space is a positive indicator for ongoing sustainable growth in Dubai. With more firms setting up here and employing more people, this will drive a positive feedback loop in the economy, supporting employment in a host of hospitality and services sectors as well.
3: It's the voice of Daniel Richards of Emirates MBD, Thierry Delvaux of JLL joining us in the studio in just a few moments' time to discuss that. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we are talking energy, delighted to be joined in the studio now by Mariam Salman, consultant with Camar Energy here in the Middle East. Mariam, good to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed let's talk about earnings of energy companies let's talk about the big ones overseas the Exxon's and the bps of this world record profits for many of them but also a lot of outrage about that joe biden in his state of the union speech singled out exxon mobil and said the fact that they've made hundreds of billions of dollars is outrageous what do you make of this
5: well um We should be looking at the record earnings of these international oil majors in the wider energy context. Of course, we know that energy markets have been upended in 2022, and the focus has returned to energy security, which has become a prime driver for a number of these players. How do they meet global uh, oil supply? How do they make sure that energy demands are being consistently met? And in that aspect, um, majors like BP, Exxon, or even Shell, they've had had the pleasure of uh, leveraging a number of... Uh, overseas assets for higher prices to earn a number uh, to earn a lot of revenue for the fiscal year 2022. And what this actually indicates is that even though there are a number of decarbonization plans that these majors have, there's a growing outrage, as you rightly say, by environmentalists and by Joe Biden. Uh, We know Greenpeace is outraged at BP's record earnings. It might not necessarily mean that they are sort of moving away from the decarbonization angle itself, but because shareholders seem more willing to reward um, in, uh, to reward oil and gas activity to meet energy security, which is being underpinned as sort of the stepping stone to the future energy transformation, this might rub some of the environmentalists the wrong way. How can we actually meet the energy transition if we are allowing the oil and gas majors to accrue so many revenues? But on the flip side, you could argue that to actually realize the energy transition you would require those revenues from higher upstream oil and gas earnings to go into these businesses' decarbonization plans to actually realise them.
3: We don't have as much visibility on the oil or energy companies here in the Middle East. We have some. Aramco, of course, is a listed company now. We haven't had their full year earnings. They will be coming in the next couple of days. The only one we've heard from in the UAE uh, that, that I can see is Adnoc Distribution. And that's more of a retailer, really, rather than an oil company. But, yeah. but what, what do we know about what's happening here?
5: I think uh, a number of the national oil companies are now increasingly uh, looking at their distribution arms to sort of Reduce their overall scope emissions, and uh, one important factor to take into consideration is that the distribution or the retail fuel arm can play an important role in the decarbonization of the transport sector. They could be uh, they could encourage the uptake of uh, EV charging stations. They could provide e fuels or synthetic fuels uh, in their infrastructure, and um, by doing so, as I mentioned uh, in my last point about BP's and Exxon's earning uh, record revenues. The parent company earning higher, uh, higher net earnings, a portion of that can also be directed to the decarbonization from the arm that is responsible for distribution. So while they can uh, hold on to their exports to meet energy security, so to say, for the time being in the near to medium term, as it is a critical aspect right now, we can see that the distribution and retail arms can undertake these measures sort of to drive forward efficiency and energy transition gains. Through EV charging uh, infrastructure, synthetic fuels, biofuels, etc.
0: Let's talk oil, if we can, Mariam. Uh, it's been an interesting week for oil. St- week started really well, five yeah. percent bounce, uh, because of well some analysts suggesting China demand optimism there. That slowed a little bit midweek and come back coming down a good a percentage point yesterday as well. Um, How do you read the oil price numbers? Where are we at this morning? Currently sitting pretty Brent crude at 84.18. So yeah, down from a start, still optimistic to a certain degree. But you're reading of those numbers this week?
5: Um, I would say that there will be some continued uncertainty this week and for the remainder of the month. We know that China has now removed a zero-COVID strategy. And in the anticipation of that, a number of leading organisations had predicted that demand would spike and coupled with the OPEC plus cuts that are currently underway, it would send prices skyrocketing to the triple digits again. But uh, I think we should account, uh, we should take into account that there has been a fallout from the zero COVID strategy. Industrials and manufacturing are just beginning to pick up pace in China. They have been more slow moving than expected. There is sort of a heightened caution amongst people themselves to continue taking as many precautions as possible. And if we look at um, neighboring countries like Japan, they are considering removing their COVID restrictions, travel restrictions for Chinese travelers, and this in itself has not lent any solid support to the aviation sector over there, which is, as you know, a major uh, consumer for uh, global fuel. Um, in, in that aspect, I think um, the the fallout from the zero COVID strategy, the strict lockdowns that were in place up till now and the uncertainty around the removal of these travel restrictions will continue to weigh on uh, economic sentiment for at least the foreseeable one month
3: Okay. can we talk about india because it was india energy week <coughs> over the past few days and we had some big speakers you had sultan al-jabba who is among other things the ceo of Abu Dhabi national oil company he was there of course you had senior figures uh, from india as well you had the oil minister speaking there as well hardeep singh Puri, He says, I continue to maintain that the Gulf, the countries of the Gulf, will continue to be major suppliers and account for a large percentage of our oil imports for a long time to come. What did you make of those comments?
5: Yes, uh, I can see why India would consider its relationship with the Gulf and the Middle East producers as paramount to long term security of supply for the country. Uh, What's actually happened in the last year is that India has become the ground for competition amongst a number of suppliers because Russian crude has been taken up by India at record discount prices. And um, Russia will continue to provide these discounted barrels because, as far as it is concerned, it has no problem, really, in principle, selling its oil at $45 a barrel. The urals is trading at $50 a barrel currently, and this is way below the oil price cap set by the EU and G7. So as long as India, or by extension China, can negotiate a discount on these barrels of oil, they will continue to do so. This sort of fits neatly into the EU G7 strategy. They wanted the, that Russian revenues are substantially reduced so that it, it does not fund the government of uh, Vladimir Putin. But what happens is that Russia can undercut GCC suppliers on price, and it can so threaten um, the GCC suppliers' market share in India and in other countries. Now, if the EU G7 were to apply, say, secondary sanctions on on countries importing Russian oil who do not abide by the Russian oil price cap, then India would probably shy away, as in the case with sanctions against Iran. So I would say this is sort of a temporary um, like wait-and-watch kind of situation, or watch-and-wait, whichever way you want to see it. How does the political situation uh, on the global scene unfold? And if sanctions are um, applied, secondary sanctions are applied on importers of Russian oil. And if the price cap on Russian oil ultimately fails, then would India still continue taking in Russian oil or prefer the more stable and reliable supplies from the GCC?
3: Mariam, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Mariam Salman, consultant with Kamar Energy, joining us in the studio. Thank, Thank you. you. Catch up on the business
0: headlines with the Bite sized Business Breakfast. Right, let's get back to one of our big talkers of the day. And it is, of course, all things demand. Increased demand for quality spaces combined with strong net absorption is creating upward pressure on grade A rents across the UAE, as we've been reporting this morning. As you just heard there from Dan Richards, that demand being uh, felt most keenly in the office and the commercial space. Time now to get a little bit more take on this from The Source. Uh, of uh, those conversations. Uh, and that is, of course, JLL, uh, who have been hard at work putting together uh, several pieces of work. Future of Work event, which gave rise to the Future of Work survey, within which was the demand study. To explain it all to our CEO of JLL Middle East and Africa, Thierry Delvaux, joined us live here in studio. Thierry, good morning to you.
2: Good morning, Tom. Nice
0: to see you, as always. We hear this phrase supply and demand all the time at the moment. Um, you have done the UAE demand study as part of this uh, Future of Work survey as well. H- has, the, has the demand gone up within the last year, or has there always been demand there?
2: No, no, no. The demand went up significantly because um, most companies want to have Another office because the office, which used to be questioned about two years ago whether it's needed or not, is now becoming the solution to bring the people back to the office. We've also seen an influx of new companies uh, entering the market in Dubai, hearing that the economy is booming here. So we had significant amount of take up of companies that were not in Dubai before.
0: So I don't get it because not that long ago, we were all sat around this table talking about the fact that everyone was working remotely. We had shared workspaces so you didn't need to invest into office space, etc. And that was going to be the future of work. But that seems to be changing.
2: No, the future of work is is actually not... um, The question is not whether uh, employees want to work from home or from the office. Future of work is actually delivering the flexibility that employees require. And today... Uh, a lot of people actually realized that they missed the office. And actually, they don't miss the office. They miss their colleagues. Mm. So a lot of companies decided that, okay, we've got to offer a better solution in terms of uh, workplace uh, if we want to get our people back. So companies moved from one location to another, not so much because they needed space, but because they wanted to offer better quality space to their employees,
0: so it's not a question of just getting more square footage and getting a bigger office. It's thinking about what you do with that space. Exactly,
2: and I'll take an example. Uh, JLL, as an example in Dubai, is going to be moving in, in March, uh, and uh, we have devi- this. We have designed what we believe is the future uh, of work, the future office, and what it is actually is a not so not so many desk. You can work from home. Whatever you have to do on your computer, you can do it from home. But it's offer amenities, uh, very vibrant uh, collaboration space. So basically, a space where you come to meet with your colleagues or with your clients. Not so much a space where you come and sit and do your homework. on a a computer.
0: Tina, you've got a vested interest in this. Um, uh, You've got a keen eye for it as well, and having spent a number of years here in the UAE, are you seeing
3: that shift change? Oh, well I'll tell you what we see, because yeah, Tom's alluding to the fact that that my wife and I own an architecture firm, so we do a lot of office design work. But I tell you what. one of the things we do see, Thierry, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know if you do as well. On the one hand, yes, workspaces like that are the future. On the other hand, you still have quite a lot of people in professional services with quite a traditional mindset, I want my own office. And they'll go, yes, but. Yes, I get that whole thing about space and not having assigned desks. But there's a for, for a, a number of people here, there's a certain prestige to having your own office, territoriality, you want to put a picture of your dog up. And there's quite a lot of people still like that, pushing back against the workspaces that you're describing. That's what I find. What's your experience?
2: Well, this is a great point, uh, Richard. And I I hope you come and visit us and see our our (laughs) space because it's all about flexibility. It's offering a hybrid solution. So, yes, there's a lot of space uh, for collaboration to sit with your uh, colleagues. But we also have some space for the people who want to be in their office and have their little plan and their picture of their family on their desk. So this is what I call flexibility, is to offer different solutions for different kind of mindsets. So I completely agree with your your opinion.
0: Quick one about the money, if I can, as well, Thierry, because in line with demand uh, and the supply and demand issue at the moment, we're seeing rents rocketing at the moment. Are we uh, we likely to see any leveling out of that or are we going to see more and more people priced out of the market?
2: There's no delivery of new space. So as long as we don't see more <laughs> delivery of space in the market, we will see the rents going up. And today, um, officially, the DIFC made the sev- the 16th worldwide ranking in terms, terms of highest uh, rental uh, market. Uh, Hong Kong still is the most expensive market in the world. Uh, Dubai used to be 36th uh, in 2021, is now 16th on the, on the world ranking. So... It's one of the most rapid growth in terms of rental uh, levels. But uh, you will only see some leveling out of the rental levels once you see a significant amount of space being delivered, which is not the case right now.
0: 30 seconds left, Thierry. Solution? Repurposing of existing space?
2: Absolutely. It's absolutely critical. Um, We uh, we were talking about A-grade space. Uh, the vacancy within the B category buildings is high. And usually people will go build greenfield, new development. Today, we need to repurpose uh, the B grade space that is existing across the city, yes. It's
0: always good to catch up with you, Thierry. Thank you so much Thank indeed you. for coming in. Thank uh, thanks. Enjoy your Friday. Enjoy your weekend as well. If you get a weekend at these days, you're probably here, there and everywhere around
2: the region. What is a weekend? <laughs>
0: Thierry Delvaux, always lovely to chat with you, the CEO of JLL Middle East and Africa. Joining us live in studio. They've just released their
3: Future of Work survey. Get a copy of it now. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we're talking family businesses here in the UAE. That's because DIFC, the financial centre, finalising regulations to enable more family-owned businesses to start operating from DIFC, in particular, what it calls the Global Family Business and Private Wealth Centre at DIFC. Jacques Visser is the Chief Legal Officer. He's with us in the studio. Morning, Jacques. Good morning, guys. So what's different now? Well, uh, DIFC
6: has obviously always been um, a place to go in, in terms of family business and setting up family structures. Uh, in, in in a way that is a little bit more sophisticated than what is available uh, in the rest of the market. Uh, and what has happened recently, uh, in January of this year, the um, UAE federal government uh, announced the new family business law. Uh, and that really allowed for us uh, to take uh, advantage of some of the benefits under that law, now specifically giving recognition. Uh, to free zone regimes such as the DIFC and, and and giving our courts jurisdiction in respect of, of the family structure set up in the DIFC uh, and other benefits that um, fits in with good governance uh, and with sort of incentives around putting proper succession planning in place. So that was sort of the the impetus for us to, to look again at our family business offering. And in that context, as you quite rightly mentioned, Uh, We launched the Family Wealth Center that will then leverage off of some of those benefits uh, under the federal law and just make the lives of people easier, sort of a concierge-style offering, red carpet, private banker-style offering where people can come in and their lives are made easier. So that's sort of at the one end. And also our Family Office uh, uh, offering, which is essentially looking after the affairs of uh, private wealth and, and, and local families that has been in place since 2011. And what we're trying to do with the new regulations is just to make that easier and, and, and better to basically come into the DIFC as
3: a consequence. Where's the demand coming from? Is this coming from those big UAE trading families that have been a- around for two or three generations thinking we'll set up in DIFC? Is it is it family businesses coming in from overseas, India, Singapore, wherever it may be? If you look at, at your pipeline of business and people who want to come here, what do they look like? Well, it's essentially both, uh, and,
6: and, and both are growing. We, if you look at the, the big family, commercial families, and the sophistication of their businesses, they really do need uh, something more than just, say, a family business contract. And, and they've always looked at the DIFC as, as a means of providing uh, a really sophisticated sort of structuring tool to do proper governance, uh, family business governance, and to put proper succession planning in place. And the reason for that is, is if you just allow sort of the normal rules of succession, typically research will tell you that uh, the family wealth sort of dissipates after three generations just because the decision making becomes so dysfunctional. So we have about a trillion dollars of wealth in transfer in the region uh, over the next decade. And it's increasingly important that people look at succession planning and look at their family governance. So that is a is probably still our main source of business. But over the last few years, the, the the other side, in terms of people coming in from, from Asia, coming in from the subcontinent, coming in from the old CIS countries, coming in from the rest of the Middle East, um, have been growing. And, and obviously, of late, you see a lot of wealth coming in where people for lifestyle reasons, for not paying personal tax, those types of reasons. You see a lot of new wealth coming in. And, and that's basically the pipeline that we see in the DIFC.
3: So in terms of what you offer compared to other financial centers, because... Abu Dhabi global market will will clearly be looking at this sector closely as well as will others Riyadh as well saudi arabia we know is is very very active in attracting businesses what's the competitive landscape like
6: we obviously welcome competition <laughs> i think it's the first you have thing to say that don't you? No but it, it it makes us obviously relook that's if you look at the the, the new family uh, office offering that that's Clearly, just looking at the competition and trying to do it better. If you look at the Family Wealth Center, this thing where people now can come in, and and they can you know have a, a concierge-style service to make their lives easier. Th- those are the types of things that you do to um, you know uh, always be a sort of one step ahead of the competition. I think in in the broader context, though, um, DiFC uh, and Private wealth and, and, and family business structures, I think, has been a key pillar of our offering since day one. I think that is one of the key reasons why, why DIFC came into existence in the first place. And uh, we've always catered for that. So if you look in the past, the, some of the legislation that we've put in place that, that have now been recognized as sort of best in class, We've always looked at it, and we've always looked at it in a substantive way to to make sure that it's a holistic offering. And I think that's the one part that uh, thus far has been working quite well. DIFC obviously also has a real depth in terms of the people that advise in respect of that. Uh, The the advisors, the lawyers that sit and build these structures, which which you won't necessarily see in, in other centers to that depth. And I think the one thing that you need to keep in mind is that when you deal with private wealth and you deal with, with families, they're inherently quite conservative in the way that they look at things. So if you have a system that's been up and running for 18 years and you've got a really wealth of sort of just, you know, reference material that you can refer back to and say, this is how it works in the DIFC, people will always look at that because they, they know that they can have trust in that, which is may not necessarily be the case in, in other centres in the region.
3: Often these big family businesses are quite opaque. They're not listed companies. Of course, they're, they're audited and they have accounts, but you've obviously got a duty to do your KYC, know your customer. You've got to look at anti money laundering. That's quite an extensive process for a large family office. How do you do that?
6: Well, it's obviously DIFC has always been in 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 a UAE context, sort of sort of the the beacon that that people point towards as 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 best practice, uh, and we take that quite seriously. So uh, w- the way we do it is is just by uh, people's uh, people and systems and processes and, and AI at the back of it and looking and monitoring uh, these and and the take on process is quite extensive, but. Uh, In this new way, under the Family Wealth Centre, you will at least have a a person sitting there facilitating the process for you. And and whether that then goes on to opening up a bank account for you or just managing the process for you internally, Uh, to have somebody that sits by your side and taking you through that uh, will hopefully make the job quite easier.
3: Last question. Will you help them get a table at Zuma on a Friday night?
6: Uh, Well, (laughs) unfortunately not. (laughs)
3: You're you're good, but you're not that good. No. (laughs) Jacques, I'm joking. It's a great initiative. Thanks very much indeed for joining us this morning. Jacques Visser is the Chief Legal Officer at DIFC talking about their new initiatives when it comes to family businesses.